0: Welcome back Um, this year we're trying something a little bit different that was inspired by our colleague Julian Sanchez at surveillance conference which was to have the flash talk these flash talks which are interspersed in between the panels so we just can cover a bunch of things that we can't like all get on one panel Um, for people who are familiar with DC and the kind of conversations we have around here uh, sentencing has been a thing for a while. And so you go to a bunch of meetings and you hear about drug courts, drug courts, drug courts. And we, you know, we have eighteen thousand police agencies. We've got, you know, fifty some odd drug courts. And there's some people swear by them, like they're the greatest thing ever. And other people are like, our failure rates miserable. We don't know what we're gonna do. And a few years ago, we heard about this Hope program out of Hawaii. And I, we I never really got a very good description of it, but they're like, it's it's good and it's it, you, you got to listen to this. This is absolutely great. And some of the talks were all right. And then I was at a meeting a few weeks ago, a few months ago, I guess. And sure enough, the judge who started Hope Program was giving a talk about what it was. And I was absolutely fascinated. So it was absolutely my pleasure to uh, bring him here today. Uh, Judge Alm is a former judge in the 1st District of Hawaii. And he's also a former U.S. attorney and prosecutor. So it's not that he, this is one of these uh, soft on crime people that, uh, the, reformers are often smeared as. No, he, he's, he, he, he sentence people and he means it. But he found a way, and he'll explain it to you, how to make drug offenders more reliable and make sure that they get the treatment that they need. Please welcome judge all. Thank you.
1: Yes, good morning, everybody. The, you know, we have almost 5 million people on probation or parole in the United States, and the failure rates are terrible, 30 40% then going to state prison. And I was a career prosecutor. The reason that became, in the last case, the prosecutor's office was the murder of a police officer. I was the toughest sentencer in the courthouse when I got sent, uh, put on the bench in 2001. Uh, but I realized, uh, looking at the system, that our probation system wasn't working really well. And I, we, I learned this later. I didn't, And I would certainly commend the comments earlier about we have to base criminal justice uh, policy based on data and research. And when I got onto the bench, I didn't know it. I knew almost nothing about uh, research in criminal justice. But I could see problems in court. So when I got assigned to this felony trial calendar in mid-June of 2004, I would see motions to revoke probation. And there'd be multiple violations, 10, 15, or more. And I realized the probation officers had tried to work with them. And our POs are all social workers, uh, half have master's degrees. But they didn't have any leverage to encourage better behavior from the probationers. And nobody wants to send somebody to prison for five or 10 years based on a couple of positive drug tests, or they shouldn't want to. So they would tend to let a lot of violations slide. And then that would lead to disrespect by the probationer. And you'd get, as far as court consequence, nothing, 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 five years in prison. And so that's the motions I would see with this. Uh, And uh, because of my background in law enforcement, it really made it a natural for me. And clearly, to give an idea of our situation, uh, we have about a million people on Oahu. That's where Honolulu is. And as a judge, I always believed the truly violent and dangerous, the ones who won't stop stealing, send them to prison. No probation system is going to work with them. But also, we should be sending to prison people who we are afraid of, not who we're mad at. And there's too much irritation in the criminal justice system that leads to that result. So when I got in this calendar in mid-June of 2004, we had about 8,000 people on felony probation, and they were just, uh, RPOs had already started using evidence-based principles. They used the National Institute of Corrections, uh, eight evidence-based principles approach, which means you do risk assessments and RPOs, I didn't know this at the time, were using the LSIR, Level of Service Inventory Revised, to figure out the big criminogenic risk factors, then you you try to enhance intrinsic motivation. So the defendants decide for themselves what is better for the future. And they use motivational interviewing for that. And then you target the right intervention. So RPOs were doing all that. But there was no leverage, there was no mechanism for the defendants to follow through with this stuff. And if they and their friends are hanging out using meth, which is our biggest drug problem in Hawaii, along with alcohol, of course, then it's not going to work, and they're not going to be motivated to do things. So we have POs of these big caseloads. Crystal meths are a big problem. I'll talk about drug court some more later on. Drug courts can be great; they're effective with virtually every population they work with. The problem is. They often are shackled by these restrictive entry requirements. For the, so the only people who can get into drug court are unlikely to have real problems with the criminal justice system. Almost none of the drug courts would take people with violent history. So when I started, drug courts were really not a player in this. And so remember, probation as usual, big caseloads, no rapid response. So if somebody tests positive for methamphetamine, typically the PO is going to say, What's going on, Steve? Oh, I had a fight with my wife. I'm stressed out from work. Well, you understand next year you might get revoked if you keep this up. Don't worry, I'm going to quit. But I walk out of the office understanding, okay, this system is not that serious. I can keep doing what I'm going to do. It's hard to quit. My friends all use, you know, I've got this wired. And the way I think about things is how to play this game, how how to game this system. And so if that's, you know, probation as usual, POs have this choice work with the the person, encourage them, refer them to treatment, or write up the violation, refer them back to court, and ask for five or 10 years in prison. It's all or nothing. And so I thought, if that didn't work, what would work? And I really thought, how did my wife and I raise our son? How were we raised? Your parents tell you they care about you, but every family has rules. And if there's misbehavior, usually there's going to be a consequence right away. You know, it helps us growing up tie together misbehavior with a consequence, and we learn from it. It doesn't have to be severe; it shouldn't be severe. It should be consistent, and it should be proportionate. This really is parenting one hundred and one from the sanction standpoint. And I thought, you know, if we could do that, maybe they wouldn't use drugs so much. Maybe they'd go see their PO. Maybe they'd go to or persevere in treatment. But I was just thinking, what made you know what was logical. So if we could bring that parenting approach, let's give it a try. We didn't have any funding. Uh, I even forgot to tell the Chief Justice about this. You know, it just slipped my mind. Uh, but I, talk, I talked to Cheryl Noy, this great probation officer. She said, supervised. She said, this is great. This is our missing piece. It'll bring some accountability to the system. So she said, we're on board. I met with a prosecutor and public defender. And they said, a crisis can be an opportunity. They said, let's give this a shot. Because what I was going to do is deconstruct that 10 violation motion to revoke and go back to each violation and give them a proportionate, consistent jail sanction. We thought of community service. It was too slow and cumbersome. Jail is immediate. It's impactful. It's unpleasant. And I can control it. So hope really is this probationer-centered collaborative strategy. And because Shirley Noy ran the high risk unit that was any sex offender who wasn't in prison was on probation they were supervising them as well as people with the worst drug and alcohol problems they failed at regular probation they were transferred into her unit her unit had a slightly smaller caseload maybe 190 to 100 clients per PO and Shirley Noy is kind of a hard ass so she would make this work and she said to her POs we are going to give this a try if it works great if it doesn't we will do something else, but we're gonna give this a try because I think this can help bring some accountability. They were doing motivational interviewing, but it, was, you know, it wasn't working in defense at all, this stuff isn't going that bad. But with a consequence each time, maybe that would start to change. And so if probation officers actually have folks coming to see them who are sober, they can use the evidence-based principles like motivational interviewing, cog skills, the r approach. They can use all that to great effect. And it's a supportive, caring environment by the judge. And so in talking to folks about how this would work, uh, because Shirley Noyes' unit was the high-risk unit, that's who we started with. I didn't know that the data would support that and that that's what you should do, so it was kind of lucky. But practically speaking, if she ran a low-risk unit, she probably would have told me, you know, I'm not going to do this with you. Because I've learned since then with the research, you should focus on the high risk, don't overtreat the low risk, and don't mix the two groups. So Cheryl was totally on board because she was running this high risk unit. And so that's who we were after. And like I said, the POs use these, you know, the National Institute of Corrections, evidence based principles. And the reason, you know, one of the reasons I, I, I retired from the bench last year, we rented our house out there, we moved here, because hope is now in versions inspired by hope are in thirty-two states. Thirty are in probation, four in parole. We we finished up a pretrial pilot in Hawaii that Steve Raphael from Berkeley is doing the RCT on. We're really looking forward to seeing that. But three and three states are using the Hope sanctions component to help in prison to reduce inmate on inmate assault, inmate on staff assault and their overuse of solitary. They have a quick hearing, short time in solitary back, restrictive housing back to General Pop. And so that's what all this started with. We focused on the high risk and the whole hope procedures is all violations are going to lead to a sanction. It's going to be consistent, proportionate. We have four basic sanctions. If you show up late for the probation office or for a drug test, you come in that afternoon or even the next morning, but you test clean, $3.85 rapid drug screen cups, very accurate. If you test clean, you're not even arrested. You're given a court date several days later when you get time off from work. You come into court you admit to it, and you get locked up in the cell block at the courthouse. So there is a consequence. No papers, no books, no cell phone. My god, it's an Eighth Amendment <laughs> violation, right? Uh, and then at 3 o'clock, you get released to go see the PO. If you ever test positive and admit it, it's, you get arrested on the spot, but it's two days in jail. If you test positive and deny it, could be a false positive. It's very rare, but it's possible. You're released. Given a court date the following week, we sent it to the lab for a gas chromatograph, but the lab confirms that it's 15 days because you're in denial, you're lying, you're wasting people's time. If you run away and law enforcement has to look for you, it's going to be 30 days. I'd rather have the police and the sheriffs patrolling their neighborhood, my neighborhood, uh, and if they're running away, they're going to do 30 days, and if that happens repeatedly, they're going to get the prison term. And that's what, as you can see, that's what we're doing the warning hearing is something the public defender, when I talked to him that summer, he said, you know, the rules are the same, but you're actually gonna enforce them all. Can you like warn our guys about this? And I thought, okay, that made sense. Uh, I asked the prosecutor in Ms. Inoy to design a new fill in the blanks form that could be done in five minutes. Tested positive or blank on blank. So the POs can do it in five minutes. You're asking them to do something new. You, don't, you wanna make it as less labor intensive as possible. And so based on what the public defender said, we, we started this with a warning hearing. On October 1st of 04, Shirley Noy was supervising in her high risk section, 34 people that came from my courtroom. We were concerned about cherry picking, so we wanted to make it very clear, it's only the people that happened to be in her section. There were 34, 18 sex offenders, 16 drug offenders. I told the assembled group, Everybody in this courtroom wants you to succeed on probation. Your attorney does, the prosecutor does, the probation officer does, I do. Everybody wants you to succeed. The taxpayers of Hawaii, it's almost $50,000 a year to lock you up, but you're an adult. You're going to make your own decisions. I can't control what you do, but I can control what I'm going to do. So from now on, if you violate these conditions of probation, you're going to jail. But we all are human beings. We make mistakes. So if you ever use... Mr. So-and-so, what's going to be your first instinct? To stay away? Yes. Well, I urge you, don't do that. Come in and admit to it, because if you do, you're going to get two days in jail. If you test positive, deny it, and the lab confirms that it's 15, you run away, it's 30. I laid out totally the sanctions, but I was encouraging them to succeed, and I can't tell you the number of defendants over the years who've stopped me to say, judge, nobody believed in me but you, and you wanted me to succeed, and nobody ever told me that before, and it's true. When I left last summer, I was supervising 2,000 felony offenders in Hope, including every sex offender on Oahu. And it's because I would only see them for the violations. We discovered early terminations several years ago, a guy named Jesse James Bates, Jr. How's that for a triumph of Hope over experience, right? His father's a major criminal. He was too. And I told him, Mr. Bates, at the warning hearing, no offense. If I had been your judge, I would have sent you to prison. But... Another judge gave you probation, so we're going to start with that. The only difference is if you abscond, I'm going to send you to prison. The best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. He said, what if somebody does perfectly on hope? I said, if anyone go two years without a violation, I'll terminate their probation. He said, "Would that apply to Jesse James Bates Jr. too? And I said, yes. Everybody laughed. You know, the defendants in court laughed. And sure enough, he did it. And he said, it's amazing, judge. I've been a criminal since I was 15. Now I'm clean and sober. I'm working full time. And so... That's how it all started, and we had great stats from our Hawaii Attorney General's office. Uh, They found, they they used the warning hearing as the start date, looked back three months for positive drug tests and missed appointments. The folks that were... Uh, And then they look forward from the warning hearing on. By the end of 2005, the people in HOPE were testing positive 91% less than they used to. They were missing appointments 86% less. We went to the legislature. They gave us $1.2 million. We used almost 800,000 of it for drug treatment slots. We then hired some more POs. We hired some... drug testers, so they don't, So the POs didn't have to do that. And, and to go to the legislature, we needed a name, so we had a contest among the POs, we had a lot of entries, and the court staff. One of the early ones was Yank and Spank, <laughs> head of the Sex Crimes Unit. My 15-year-old son said, fail in jail. I said, not aspirationally enough. I believe in the defendants and they think they're being treated fairly and they are in fact being treated fairly. So we had great numbers but then Angela Harkin from Pepperdine got a grant from NIJ and Smith Richardson to do a randomized control trial study. You can see the numbers. Mid 30, there were 330 in the study group, 163 in the control group. Three quarters men, average of 16, 17 prior arrests. All active drug users to be a part of this. And here are the outcomes. The hope, Group, uh, the control group got arrested 47% of the time. Hope group, 21. 55% fewer new arrests. 72% fewer uh, instances of positive drug tests. 61% skipped appointments. Probation was revoked 53%. The biggest number of all, they were getting sentenced or served prison terms, multiple year prison terms, 48% fewer. Huge. Huge. And one of the uh, defendants told the paper, every night I'd think about the hotline, because they have to call a drug test hotline every weekday morning. And he'd go, if I use tonight, I go to jail tomorrow. He said, it just ruined the high. So you've got desistance literature talks about they've got to break away from their drug-using friends. This does it. One of the fascinating parts to it, we discovered most people can stop using drugs without going to treatment. Fascinating. Who knew? Uh, But we all think about cigarettes, right? We all know people who quit smoking cigarettes. Did they go to treatment? No somehow the levers in their life made it so they could do it. So the peop- this is the hope group, the 330. 51% did not have a single positive drug test that first year. Another 28% had one. So what we really need to do is save the treatment beds for the ones who are testing positive, going to jail briefly, who just can't stop on their own. And that's what we should do. Dr. Hawken refers to this as behavioral triage. She came back, and, you know, people would ask me, sure it works when they're under supervision, but what about afterwards? Well, the good news is it has legs, it has sustainability. Dr. Hawkins came back in 2014 and looked at, by now, people who are off supervision, both the study group and the control group. They were still getting arrested for a lot fewer new crimes But the best number of all, they're being returned to prison half as often, 52% less often in Hope. And the native Hawaiian, our host population, did so much better in Hope than on probation as usual. Uh, Great numbers in early termination. Up to then, we had 100 people who had been granted early termination. Dr. Hawken ran the rap sheets. Not a single arrest for anything of the 100. And it really increased after that. So, I, I would do three or four of those every year. We talked about procedural justice a lot. It doesn't happen in court much. Hope really is procedural justice. It's great for mentally ill population. The rules are clear. The consequences are clear. There's a real supportive element. And when I talk about these programs growing across the country, the single biggest misconception is they just focus on the sanctions. And the sanctions are not punishments for its own sake. Even the Justice Department's demonstration field experiment, it was all about sanctions we got to tell people, it, the sanctions are a means to an end. It's to keep people sober and seeing their PO. So our, like our POs can use evidence-based principles, treatment can do that, and it's all in a caring and supportive environment started by the judge in court. And those of you who, you know, look at the court system will understand this. Um, I have no request to change POs anymore, and in 12 years of doing this, I had maybe 35 contested hearings with live witnesses. Otherwise, every single time they admitted it. This would not work if the defendants did not buy into it and did not think they would be treated fairly. Again, short term, you're trying to use some levers in the out- outside to comply for behavioral change. Long term, the defendants themselves want to stay sober. They want to work. They want to be back with their spouse. Uh, what one of the ide- iterations of hope is swift, certain, and fair. Even if you have a great sanctions program, which that focuses on sanctions and some rewards, that's only going to work with a certain populace, percentage of the population. A much bigger population is going to be affected if you're using evidence-based principles, both by the PO and the treatment providers, and you've got it with a judge providing this kind of uh, work. Lorana Bartels is a, a law professor from uh, Australia, and she wrote a great article recently. If you go to HopeProbation.org, it's got a lot of this research, a lot of articles, and she talks about hope is really through a ju- therapeutic jurisprudence lens. So, uh, you know, Swift Certain Affair or some of these other programs that, are, that have, have tried to copy some of Hope Focus on the sanctions. It's a lot more than that. It's sanctions plus EBP in a, in a caring environment. Uh, just a word about drug court. Uh, our drug court was one of these low-risk pretrial operations. Prosecutors would veto whoever goes into it. We switched that. The focus of that, and there's a copy of the Law Review article I wrote for the University of Minnesota Outside, where we shift the focus from drug court from a low-risk pretrial to a high-risk probation. So think of a hospital as a courthouse. Uh, courthouse is a hospital regular probation is the outpatient clinic no offense hope is all the wards drug court should be your ICU it's wraparound service it can work with everybody drug Mar- Doug Marlow came out to Hawaii he's from the Uh, National Association of Drug Court Professionals, their chief researcher, he loved it. And he said, now I get the difference between drug court and hope. So the combination of the two, regular probation for a number of folks, if they have problems, put them in hope. If they have problems in hope, see what it is. If they run away repeatedly, they're going to go to prison. But if they just can't stop using after one or more treatment episodes, then they should go into drug court. Because drug court can be wonderful and work with everybody. So that's our, you know, and when I started this, people said, this is never going to work with defendants who bring to prison. They can do time standing on their head. And I said, yeah, people can do time when they have to, but human nature being what it is, they don't want to do it today, right? That's, that's the, the model. We want to do things today and that, disruptive nature is what it is. You have to have a really good drug testing component. I was in Brazil last week for the State Department talking about it. They can't drug test people. I said, it's really going to be hard for you to work with your drug-using population. And we have these great drug testers, $25,000 a year God. AIDS. Imagine living in Hawaii on that. But they're all college graduates, so they can be POs if they do well. A young lady was caught with a vial in her rear end, substituting it in. She got arrested. When she came to court, I told her, you know, you're going to get 30 days in jail for tampering to the system. But I also said, you also are going to have to find some new friends because that other sample was dirty too. (laughs) Who is she hanging out with, right? Who's got clean pee? I have to go to court. Well, it wasn't. So I started with 34. I ended up with 2,000 people in this program, in this strategy more and And we bank about thirty percent of the folks that means administrative supervision, hardly supervised at all again d- don 't overtreat the low risk that means three thousand six hundred people are being actively supervised three thousand eight hundred I by myself was supervising two thousand and it 's got these good numbers to back it up that 's why it 's getting so much attention. so we do have a few academics who I think don 't understand hope and think it 's cruel. They say people need treatment they don 't need jail well. Spend some time in a courtroom. Guys in court are going to prison and failing at probation because of drug use. The defense bar in Hawaii was very skeptical when this started. Now they are the biggest supporters of it by far because they know their clients and they know they're really, really helped by this. So I think we have time for a question or two. And otherwise, thank you very much for your attention. Right. Well, uh, to go back a step, for the 15-day sanctions, if somebody – and that's what will happen. Their company truck is parked outside when they test positive. And so they lie about the test so they can take care of their truck or their family car or whatever. The very first time that happens, I will give them weekend jail, Friday night to Sunday night. But I'll tell them, you know, the next time, don't use again, but if you do use, get a couple of days off from work so you can get dropped off here, you can take the bus here, you can do the two days. And let's see, you're a roofer. Do your fellow roofers really want you up there if you're under the influence or hungover? And they say no. I say, well, you know, that's what your situation is. So we are appreciative of that situation. You're an adult. You're going to make the choices. And they, you know, and I can tell you, to their side, this is fair. For the first time, the sanctions are, same rules, but the sanctions are laid out, they're given encouragement, and most of them are very successful. But, you know, the question was, what about work? We try to mitigate that, and if it's possible to give them weekend jail, you know, we do that. From a public safety standpoint, if they're testing positive and admitting it, they're going to get arrested on the spot. But if they're doing that, the hearing's two days later and they get cut loose. Okay? Okay, well, thank you all very much.